2: Thanks for joining us with another Bun Business on CannabisRadio.com. My next guest is definitely no stranger to Cannabis Radio. He's been on with us several times, most recently. Last year, he was on our High Society with Paxton Quigley series. And he is a New York City-based cannabis law and criminal defense attorney, executive director of Normals Chapter in the Empire State. As we know, it's a national organization for the reform of marijuana laws. I'm here with the principal of the law offices of David Clifford Holland, PC. David C. Holland. David, thanks for being on with us.
3: Thank you for this
2: opportunity to join you. And my pleasure. A chance to go and get you on blunt business, but uh, haven't had the chance to do that yet. But you know, to make the rounds here, we have a lot to talk about when it comes to New York. We know a lot of story, a lot of news has come out of there, so let's talk about it right away. New York State will now announce plans to usher in its first outlets for retail sales of adult use cannabis by the end of the year. And to be one of the state's first licensed retailers, the licensing now, I believe, is about 500 licenses that are going to be doled out initially. And to, in order to be one of those first licensed retailers, you or a member of your family must have been convicted of a cannabis-related offense. As part of a concerted push to assure that early business owners will be members of communities that have been affected by the nation's decade-long, decades-long war with drugs. With well, that said, many vendors are not waiting for a license to get started what i wanted to get the idea is uh, initially the approach to the licensing now and we've talked to several people right now on upcoming episodes of our green peak series we had a uh, jason or casket can Advisor, advise about cannabis licensing in there where he's directly part of that going on what do you think about the rollout right now and how social equity is is such a priority at this first early stage
3: Um, So it's a good question. So let me just say one thing. So New York state created two sets of provisional licenses that don't exist under the MRTA, which is the Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act that legalized it. What they've done is for the existing hemp growers, they've issued 52 provisional licenses that allow them to now grow, you know, uh, cannabis plants that are above three tenths of a percent of THC, which is what, you know, federally is deemed to be marijuana. With the retail side of that, so those folks just got their licenses so they can get their crop in the ground and have something out by fall. So they've now created a provisional set of 150 licenses that they intend to dole out for um, what are gonna be justice impacted individuals, like you said, that also, there's a caveat, that also have had a business that's been profitable for two years. Or they've been involved in a nonprofit and they've had a certain degree of involvement uh, and and leadership within those organizations. So it's a very small group of people that are going to be eligible. I don't I'm not aware of 500. It's more like 150 for the provisional retail licenses. Um, That being said, New York, you know, has uh, experienced what has been a wave of. Uh, retail sales going on, even though they're not authorized, right? New New York has not even come out with its rules and regulations, much less licenses for either provisionally or otherwise for retail sales. But New York does, like many states, have allowed gifting of cannabis. So, you know, you're allowed to gift up to three ounces of cannabis from me to you or any of your listeners, and that's perfectly legal. What's happened is a lot of storefronts have sort of set themselves up where people come in and buy posters and t-shirts and they happen to be gifted cannabis and that's created a bit of confusion and a question about whether that's legal or not right and i want to
2: bring that up a little bit later on because that is something i want to focus on as well now the story i'm taking from the initial question was from the new york times they're making a most of the point that and favoring those with marijuana convictions and prepping their businesses for turnkey sales new york appears to be Avoiding, trying to avoid pitfalls encountered in some other states, which has seen designated social equity applicants and other mom-and-pop marijuana businesses struggle with issues like lack of capital or competition from deep-pocketed corporate operations. When Governor Cuomo was able to get this legalization passed, the focus on social equity, do you think that the prioritizing has been, has been well-received? Has it been the right move, in your opinion? or representing normal's opinion?
3: Uh, Well, so speaking on behalf of normal, you know, we're very much consumer-oriented at this point. So consumer uh, 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 is the forefront of its thinking rather than the industry. So I also represent the New York City Cannabis Industry Association, which is about to become a statewide thing. Mm -hmm. So we look at, you know, who are the entrants into the marketplace rather than what products are available to the consumers, which is more normal's focus. Um, With that said... I think New York has one of the most progressive um, uh, social equity programs. It has a long-term view of really trying to, you know, uh, uh, redress the harms of the drug war in those communities that were devastated and those community uh, members that were incarcerated. You know, it's trying to address that for sure. With these provisional licenses, there is some criticism that, you know, like I said at the outset. These groups of people don't actually exist under the legalization law. So it'd be one thing to say a justice-impacted individual who had been arrested is allowed to pursue a license. But that sort of kicker qualifier, and you have to have had a business that has been profitable for two years, which you're the owner of, that gets to be a little bit more complicated. So is that equitable when we all know the people that had had justice impact may have not been able to therefore pay their rent one year or they may have defaulted on a car loan and they may not be qualified for bank loans? that becomes a little bit more of a, of a thorny situation. So I think that in answer to your question, New York is by far the most dedicated to social equity, but sometimes, you know, it's, uh, uh, its rollout may be different than its intent. And I'm hoping that, you know, there'll be cor- course corrections along the way to make sure that equity is always prioritized over the out-of-state, you know, deep-pocketed corporate enterprises.
2: And it's amazing the the level of investment they're putting in. $200 million, as I last read, was the reported number that was being pledged towards this social equity program. Uh, I want to take us from a story from Forbes that you were also quoted in on, uh, that they also spoke with you about. Uh, Law and policymakers, quote, have said that one goal of legalization is to encourage traditional market operators to go legitimate. Current Mm -hmm. law also requires legacy market operators to demonstrate they've been engaging in business activity in order to qualify for one of the 100 licenses. Initially, New York Governor Kathy Hochul says will be reserved for small businesses. But that puts a conundrum, they say, in this story. They need capital and they need to stay in business, even if, technically speaking, buying from them is against the law. But since they're already fulfilling demand from a market that's projected to grow, keeping in the business is one way to provide a legacy market with the startup capital necessary to enter the legal market. Now, you said this when I asked about this, quote, I don't see why people need to go to New Jersey for legal weed except for the novelty of it. When, regarding the traditional market, you said, quote, you're supporting local growers for the most part who have demonstrated responsible growing practices. End quote. Now, one, one of the selling points of legalized marijuana is product safety, but there have yet to be uh, any identified public health crises created by tainted cannabis, and that's over 50 years of prohibition. You also mentioned that the weed in New York is just as good, if not better, and a lot more accessible. Talk to me about how this first round of licenses go far. is going so far. Where are we now in the process?
3: So as of right now, we're waiting to see the applications that come out for the justice impacted individuals um, that will be those 100 licenses. But let me just say something about the 200 million fund. So this really is where New York is differentiating itself from other states. There is going to be a public private fundraise by the dormitory authority of the state of New York or what they call DASNY. And they are gonna raise 200 million and actually build out a number of retail locations and other facilities. So that people that are going to be in the prioritized licenses, and hopefully also um, later in with the regular license applications and what comes out, that these will be facilities where people don't have to look for capital of millions of dollars just to start you know, building something out in order to take the risk of whether they're gonna be able to make it and survive. This the 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 state is becoming an active participant in the in the in the cannabis model. I think that that's brilliant. Um, there's a lot of criticism about that, but in, on the whole, no other state has become active in trying to create the spaces for, particularly those people that have been um, economically challenged in terms of loans and things like that, to be able to get into the marketplace and be the first entrance in. So, I think that um, while uh, with response to the. Forbes thing, um, I, you know, I think that people will travel for the novelty like they do to Massachusetts to go get cannabis and so forth. But there really is the, you know, high quality products still floating around within New York State, because it is still the world's largest marketplace. Um, with regard to product safety, um, you know, there, there, I have not seen proof of fentanyl laced cannabis, but I'm not doubtful that and somewhere out there, there has been laced cannabis, you know, with, uh, with things like that. But that's a very small group of people that probably are coming in contact with that. And I don't think it's like the uh, much beyond the person with the, you know, Halloween and razor blades and apples as compared to, you know, the reality is it would be very expensive to put fentanyl into cannabis. It's really not in a dealer's interest to, to try to sell that product. So I think that's probably people lacing it themselves rather than necessarily seeing wild rampant patches of untested cannabis loaded with some sort of deadly poison.
2: There's a lot being said within New York, in New York City, in specifically in New York City proper, that's going on. You just prefaced it before in the first question about uh, how there are some businesses that are doing things that are not—they're not above above uh, board when it comes to what's being done. You know, the some of the uh, somewhat illicit activity you could say that's going on in New York City when it comes to cannabis and what's you know as this rollout has happened legalizations come into play it's now having to go and police those actors that are out there that might be out there for nefarious reasons i'm here again with david c hall the principal of the law offices of david clifford hall and pc executive director of normal in new york's empire state chapter here on blunt business we're back after a short break
1: rolling into some sponsors but we'll be right back with more blunt business save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app
2: Welcome back to the Boom Business. I'm here with David C. Holland, principal of the law offices of David Clifford Holland, PC. So, David, before we get back into it, there is a lot of stories being talked about. I mean, just in the last couple of days, the hit pieces from the likes of the New York Post and New York Daily News, local press, obviously, just, I don't know, they're just, they just have a, 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 a detestment of what's going on with what's happening. They're just wanting to go ahead and pick out. Some of the nefarious actors out there. So the Daily News of mention, mention a story right now about Times Square. There are weed peddlers now taking advantage of the regulations that you're seeing now between 41st 41st, and 51st Streets and 6th and 8th Avenues. You're seeing brightly colored trucks and makeshift street stands. Then there's also a point where New York Post put out a story talking about now there, now there are cannabis dealers that are selling pot. that looks like candy and ice cream to kids. There's another story that talks about, again, with New York Post. They just like to go ahead and just, you know, pile on for whatever reason. They mentioned a story how the Lower East Side of Hell Square now is ground zero for storefront uh, sales now with 13 purveyors in a four-block area. And while the State Office of Cannabis Management has yet to roll out regulations and licensing, uh, it's still ongoing, but should be arriving by the end of 2022. And then the green mile now of hell square. They're talking about in the story from New York post has found clever loopholes to get bud to customers while other shops brushed off the law entirely and dove headfirst into the marijuana market. We're going to talk about the story about the, the club in Chelsea, but I want to just talk to you about these people that have started taking advantage of the rollout and the black guy is putting in the industry at an early, early stage.
3: So let's keep in mind that, you know, the Post, the Daily News, you know, they, they have demonized and will continue to demonize cannabis any way they can because it's those just not there. been. Right. Yeah. And so those stories sell, except to I would take issue with the claim that people have been sort of abusing the process. Here's the thing is New York State, you can gift up three ounces of cannabis for free as long as there's no price tag attached to that. So and and let's take the range of storefronts that you heard thirteen in one location. You know if they're selling something other than uh, cannabis, let's say they're selling T-shirts or a poster. Um, you know and they charge seventy-five dollars for a poster that might otherwise retail for ten dollars. You know some people would say that's a disguised sale, and they're going to take the position that my intent. You know it's the value that somebody's going to put on that poster they're going to get gifted cannabis either way. It's just the value they put on the po- co- the poster. So specific intent doesn't matter. But what would you pay for a, t- a poster that was autographed by Keith Haring, like a friend of mine has? You know, that's worth $10,000. Now, is that not a valuable poster that you could sell for 10000 and gift cannabis at the same time and not have it look like a disguised thing? So it's it's a question of intent and a question of appearance. Mm-hmm. As you work your way down from, say, a storefront to a street cart, where it, the only thing being sold is cannabis. It gets to be a little bit more complicated about whether there's some sort of goodwill uh, gifting going on or have people exchange money to buy something other than cannabis when they're at these sort of street carts. And that's where it's causing confusion for a lot of people. That's where the Office of Cannabis Management um, you know, needs to give some clarification as best they can. I think they've tried, but there's still lots of different ways to view what the law is or isn't. But what you're really seeing are district attorneys who don't want to be overburdened anymore with, you know, small cannabis cases that are going to go away anyhow. Um, Office of Cannabis Management doesn't have its own deputized force yet. And the cops have taken the position that now that people can walk around on the street, you know, I'm only going to be accused of targeting certain people if I go after them. You know, it's easier for them not to get engaged in it, knowing that it's going to be kicked out, you know, not likely picked up by a district attorney's office unless it's a large scale, you know, sale or possession case. And even then that's going to fall into the gray area. So what this really comes down to is this is until the licenses come out and we'll see what enforcement looks like then, which it could be very severe. I think you're going to see more issues for the Department of Taxation are probably going to come out to people that they catch and say, we want to audit you know, the books and records you have on site. OK, it looks like, in our opinion, you know, there have been sales taking place here, which will be the subject of litigation, but this is the dollar amount we would assess to it. And you may find people that say it's easier to pay the tax and the fine than it is to go through the full blown litigation and the lawyers fees and what the outcome of that could be. So we're going to see lots of different responses, whether we like them and support them or not, that are going to slowly come out over um, once it's determined who should take the lead in trying to enforce the situation. And that's what I was saying. It's not clear whether it's the district attorneys or the OCM or the police or some special deputized force. Uh, But I think that at the end of the day, you are going to see taxation come into play one way or another.
2: And then one of the stories I want to take from February from CBS News, they report about one of these particular stores on 8th Avenue in Chelsea in New York City where they it's an example of what they were trying to do to kind of at least, you know, for oversight in terms of cracking down on certain places that are having issues. There was a cease and desist that was by the state one of many businesses in that area that were given cease and desist um the declaration of quote that the unlicensed sale of cannabis is illegal threatening the bar future licensure fines and prosecution one argument that's been made about the empire cannabis club that's located in chelsea that was part of the story was that they were operating legally emphasizing it makes a profit on selling memberships not cannabis Another argument cites part of the law that allows people to have or gift up to 3 <laughs> ounces of cannabis and quote people have come up with ideas that if they do a third party type transaction like I'll buy a t-shirt for 400 bucks and I'll give you a free bag of cannabis with that just like you just said isn't this guy's transaction
3: so is it that's the question right is that really a sale or is that what somebody's willing to pay for a t-shirt all you got to do take an example and I'm sorry to interrupt you no no look you're at doing. times square and look at these crappy t-shirts that sell in all these souvenir shops for twenty five, fifty dollars. People pay that all the time. So what's the difference if they're just buying a shirt or the gifted cannabis at the end of the day afterwards? Crappy t-shirts still sell for fifty dollars a shot. So, you know, it's the question of whether that constitutes a sale or not is a very complicated question, even though it sounds like everybody should understand the same thing. As a criminal defense attorney, I would I would argue that all day, every day what's the value of a t-shirt let's look at where it's being sold rather than what's the value of what it costs to make and what's your markup generally right because I, I can get absolutely an nyc t-shirt will get me 50 dollars in times square and it will get me nothing in beijing you know <laughs> so it's just a question of relativity
2: and it's funny it, of course there were other stories outside of new york that i saw the same thing madison wisconsin the uh the Rastafarian, Rastafarian church that was built there and has been shut down many times because they were trying to say that there was supposed to be a place of worship when they were just, you know, people were coming in and they were just basically still buying bags of cannabis. Like they were still being able to buy weed as they normally would. That it's, it's when there's no, and this is where I'm always worried about. Listen, there's a lot of intent and good with what New York State's done with this rollout but the implementation is crucial and needs to be done expeditiously expeditiously so that we don't have these kind of actors coming into play that you know are taking advantage of the system and there's no really you kind of already laid out the framework I mean where's the instruction and the guidance for the district attorneys for the uh, district attorney's office for law enforcement for government and for just for civic leaders where you know there's that has to be put into play, and this is where the governor's office needs to put more push pressure on that Office of Cannabis Management to get this done. Like this has all got to be looked at.
3: Well, so uh, agreed. I mean, there's a lot of clarification that could be used, or there's got to be just a declaration saying whatever goes, goes. There, there's no middle ground. Let me just go back to your original question, though, about social clubs and churches, which are very different than sales, right? Mm-hmm. The sales in a storefront is, is you're buying something. That's a third-party transaction in the sense of, like, it's the T-shirt, it's the poster, it's a sticker. In a club setting, you're paying for the privilege to get in. Well, now bars and restaurants have paid, you know, you got to pay a cover charge to get in the door. Why can't someplace where you're allowed to come in, meet with fellow enthusiasts, and go out back into a legalized setting outdoors, go smoke and come back, and you can be gifted cannabis along the way of different things that people have brought in? I think that that very closely resembles what's legal and allowable under the law. And when you get into the church scenario, you know, what's the cost of of somebody's worship? The amount of time they spend there? You know, people make donations to churches all the time. There are whole philanthropic organizations and one of the largest landlords in the world is a religious institution built upon donation. So, again, I think that a disguised sale is a very hard term to actually define. And it's kind of I'll know it when I see it. But the more that you have something unique and people have gone into NFTs, these non-fungible tokens that are, you know, sort of electronic uh, email type artworks, you know, those are selling for tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So why can't somebody sell it for 75, sell it and then give cannabis along the way with it? Those are going to be the future battles that I think no judge, no district attorney and no police force really wants to have to go against because they know that. It's too hard a burden on them to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that was a sale. It may look questionable, but proving it is a whole nother ballgame. I've got guys that have stores that were raided and, you know, were criminally investigated and we're still trying to work those out. Um, that being the case, you know, they're, they're very aware, of the district attorneys, that they're going to have a hard row to hoe. When it comes to proving that to a jury, and most people, and um, attorney Zissou, who's the one who's been in the article that you were reading about Camp Empire Cannabis Club, you know he or I or others are going to take it to task and take it to a jury, saying, you know, this is how is this proof? And I think that there's a hesitancy to want to bring those types of cases rather than bring, say, a tax case or something else that may be a little bit different from the state's perspective, because in the end of the game, end of the day. The state wants its revenue. It's not really looking to incarcerate people anymore. So those are things to keep in mind.
2: Now, in that same Forbes story I talked about earlier, it was talking about in defense of the plug, buying illicit cannabis may be better than legal weed. So I want to take from that story and go back to that real quick because they they bring up a point that's very interesting that I wanted to bring up to you. Quote, but aside from the novelty of buying cannabis in a for real store with taxes and everything, There's no moral imperative to quit patronizing the traditional market, quote unquote, as some marijuana legalization backers and most most for-profit cannabis companies would have you believe. In fact, in some er circumstances, the true moral choice would be to continue to buy your cannabis from the underground neighborhood plug, according to recent research. Excoriated by some policymakers in the legal cannabis industry as an unfair competitor, and a demonstration that legalization isn't working, the illicit market remains popular with consumers for reasons of price, quality, and product availability. So there's a, we know the illicit market, and I said this back, I forget who it was that I spoke with about legalization before, and talking about the fact that California is the example of where New York's going to have to re- realize they're going to have a rampant illicit market. It's, as, is, as advertised, it happens, but... A story like this from Forbes is saying, well, you know what? I mean, it's going to happen anyway. There's the argument that maybe the, the corporate or the, you know, the for-profit companies that are out there and just a legal store that has not just done properly, they're, they're trying to say that, you know, why stop supporting the underground market as opposed to just tra- trading up?
3: Well, I, I think there's different ways to approach that. But here's the thing. You know, most people have bought locally and they have trusted people that have always been their source and whole communities have built themselves around the cannabis industry. So just because people have been fortunate and, you know, if we're going to look at New Jersey, um, their social equity plan was not the best. So it's not inclusive necessarily of the real industry. So to say um, that the industry does it is unfair to still have these illicit operators around uh, there would be a strong argument to be made, but the real industry that is controlling the business never got an opportunity to get in the door because of the color of their skin and the lack of funds in their bank accounts that they can show to be able to be a worthy credit risk to be able to get set up in these communities. So it's the battle of the haves and the have-nots and the fortunate, um, and, and those that have been, they're not the less fortunate, but they're unfortunate for them that they're not going to be viewed competitively right off the bat. So it is... Um, If for those people that find if we're going to try to redress the harms of the drug war by trying to rebuild those communities that were decimated by them, investing in them by continuing to maintain the industry may be one way to do that because people that has been their sole source of income, that has been the marketplace that has existed. And until New York rolls out, it's different, you know, legalized operations. And we see how that plays out, you know, over time, There'll be my, the goal. And one thing I've been working heavily on is to try to give amnesty to the legacy market people so they can be the first to market and, and not have to worry about past tax or criminal prosecutions that will invite them over into the legalized space. And once you absorb them and assimilate them into the legalized space, it's kind of like prohibition of alcohol. Eventually nobody's you doing know, bathtub gin anymore. So uh, it will take time. And I think New York can do that. But if we're not inclusive of, and accommodating to, in some respects, the legacy market, then you're never going to see the legalized market really become its fullest or find itself sustainable in light of what would otherwise be a tax-free market and everything else. It's got to be inclusive or it's going to end up being the death of the program.
2: Now, in this conversation, I really never even thought about it, but I'm really putting this together. I I like the idea where that social equity should be positioned and it should be framed Towards those that have been in the illicit market for years, decades, that have done the right thing and have grown proper, like they have not laced the cannabis, they have not, they might have distributed it and they found somebody that can go and do, that have been able to distribute it for them for a long time, wherever they got it from. There should be something to be said about how social equity should Benefit and, and how New York State should be able to go ahead and use this as an example. You just said it yourself. There have been a lot of people that people have relied on for cannabis use and for sales for a long time, well before legalization came in. Those are the kind of people that should get the licenses.
3: Do you agree? Well, I do. Well, keep in mind social equity or the word equity is not the same as equitable. Okay. One's a question of fairness under equity, one's a question of making it even under equitable. So there's no fairness if you're not inclusive of the people that have been in the marketplace already because then there's no incentive for them to try to say, geez, my career is over and I shouldn't challenge that existing market.
2: Right, because what I'm saying is the social equity component shores up that illicit market. You're taking those people that have been doing it illegally for a long time saying, listen, we want to legitimize you. So when we do that, you get to run your business as, as it was in a more proper in a more transparent, proper way, and we tax you like any other business.
3: Yeah, and I think you would find a lot of legacy operators would do that. If they had, you know, they didn't have to look over their shoulder anymore. They were allowed to bring some of their assets and put them into bank accounts like any other normal person. That's where amnesty comes in, and that's something I'm very actively working on right now, is devising some sort of way that New York can do that, because that's – It can be done without amnesty, but you've got to give a reason for people want to leave what they've come to know in an all-cash business that's tax-free to make them want to be part of the quote-unquote workforce. And there's a lot of good incentives for people to want to do that. A lot of people do want to do that. But if you're going to prioritize out-of-state, deep-pocketed corporations rather than the market that has been and has made itself the world's largest marketplace, no corporation did that. No corporation did that. That were these people. And if you don't give them the fair opportunity and the fair shake and prioritize to at least get a foothold into the market as compared to a large multi-state operator that has a million square feet to grow, then you really have done a disservice to the state of New York and to the people that you quote unquote were uh, prioritizing and were to be the beneficiaries of the program. Yeah,
2: it's like that lot like of corporations have come up with a lot of original ideas themselves. But David, I love this point. I love the fact that, when everybody talks about how those people are disenfranchised or are just making sure that social equity and social being socially equitable, that the best round and I believe we're New York State. I don't. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Are there any other states that have done this the right way in this same fashion, where you are taking the legacy operators that have had the work under? illegal circumstances you're not penalizing them anymore you're just taxing them just like any other business and you're allowing them to actually do their business proper and legitimately that i think is the best framework for social equity more that's a better than anybody else like i don't want i mean it's one thing to go and have give the grant money and give the opportunity for licensing to somebody that has might have gone through being incarcerated or had you know either for distribution or for use that's one thing but i also think it's somebody that it's not just a, you know, an entrepreneurial venture just because you are of a particular race or ethnicity. I don't think it should be this or that. It's representation's fine. But I like this route where race, ethnicity is going to be represented because of the people that have been targeted for a long time and profiled in the same way. I think that actually works better in the long run of who gets those licenses that have actually been in the business and have done it. And now you're giving a chance to go and do it. now. Maybe some people might think that's wrong because they're going to still say, well, you were still breaking the law. But I don't think of it as such. What do you think?
3: So, you know, the, the most important thing and part of this amnesty sort of model that I just was writing again last night is, you know, the goal of the regulators should be to learn as much as they can about how the market, even in the face of life imprisonment, was able to become the largest in the world in New York state and how it runs and how its logistical operations take place and what are the credit terms that have existed amongst you know underground operators. Once you have that information, which can be imparted without incriminating anybody, you can understand how New York State in the legalized atmosphere could still walk in and still make it the world's largest marketplace. But you need to have, the only way that works is you've got to prioritize the very people that you're trying to slowly eliminate, right? You're trying to get rid of the underground illegal market and the best way to do that is to include them. And so if you don't, you, you need to prioritize them first, not last. So it shouldn't be a hundred licenses. We should be looking at a, a vastly different scenario. It's not a hundred license of people that have been arrested or had a family member arrested and had had profitable business. There are a lot of people with profitable businesses that will never be able to tell you that they were profitable because you haven't been able to immunize them against the criminal or tax penalties that come with them saying, "Hey." By the way, I ran this whole neighborhood and, you know, very successfully and I employed 25 people and and so forth. So that's the key to success is to learn how the market has existed so you can learn how to adapt it to the legalized market.
2: Now, do you feel like there might be some parameters that need to be met by some of these people that fit this amnesty model? So if there were other illicit activities they might have had on top of everything else. So say if they were, you know, not just peddling cannabis, but they also have – you know records for having other or having narcotics for example that they might have also been a part of as well or i mean let's be honest anybody that might have been any kind of racketeering or any kind of you know mob type activity even though that's not a common thing as much as it was with the five families but i mean the kind of people that could get this they need to go through some kind of a testing
3: ground would you say that's necessary okay Yeah, so there'd be a whole hearing. I'll I'll try to give it to you in a real quick nutshell. There would be basically a tribunal, which would be at least two people hearing it as hearing officers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And at least one or more people from the legacy underground that have been, you know, we have many people that are out loud and proud about what they've done. And so they understand how the markets work so they could hear the testimony of somebody and know the right questions to ask, including you may be able to conduct a background check of certain people to see that they've not been arrested for violent crimes or you know more like human trafficking and uh, some of the more lethal drug issues are out there you want to limit it to cannabis as best you can that can be achieved um but the system would be set up that it would be double blind in the sense that you would either go through an attorney or a clergyman as an applicant the reason why you would do that is they have privilege like nobody's allowed to see communications between an applicant and their attorney or their priest have that then, uh, the name known only to the attorney who then is randomly assigned a uh, uh, serial number for that person. And then that number then is put on the application rather than somebody's name. And then that next application gets submitted in and reassigned yet another serial number. So you have a double blind so that no subpoena could immediately find out who's the person behind it. And then you can have, you know, testimonial uh, uh, affidavits saying, this is what I did. This is how I got involved. Um, This is what I know about the market without trying to name anybody they did particular transactions with, but trying to establish their street cred as having been part of the the system. And if indeed they can pass all those tests and prove that they weren't part of a larger, you know, operation with other things going on, like, uh, uh, you know, much more hardcore illicit drugs, all the violence that goes with some of those, then they ought to be considered for, you know, amnesty. And allowed to get a prioritized license to get in because you're now going to have heard hearing officers who are going to be collecting all this data, not about who's who, but about how the market operates to be able to constantly educate the regulators about let's do this, let's do that to make it better. And you'll have the people that ran the market in place. And if somebody is denied amnesty, there would be an appeal process where they could indeed uh, try to say, you know, I wasn't given a fair shake or new evidence has come to light that really should have allowed me to get a prioritized license. So that's in the nutshell. It's a much more involved than that. But the idea is nobody's pointing fingers at anybody or saying, you know, it, it, to the extent they're self-incriminating and say, I've been in the business for 20 years, it's hidden behind two different serial numbers. that will never be directly trackable to them from the IRS or the, you know, really the federal authorities, you know? So that's the whole idea behind
2: it. that. I, I love the whole idea behind that. And now um, you said you're going to be writing about that. Where can we find that material by the time everybody gets to the, Hear this recording. Uh, will there be any place that people can go and look for that information? Just take a little more context on what this tribunal would entail.
3: Yeah, I haven't produced it for public consumption yet. Um, I'm working on it with the Legacy Group right now, and we're discussing it with the Office of Canvas Management. Um, and I think I want to leave it there for another month or so. I do want to publish it out, and I will gladly update you on that. But I just kind of want to get the conversation around it a little bit more formalized so that I have the best input on it so that I can then put it out in a way that really makes sense to people. And it's like very of it, easy to understand. I really yeah. like
2: the start of it. That's it's. I haven't heard that from anybody else. And I love that idea. And I think that should be something that if New York is able to implement it and it works successfully, that other states should also follow the same suit. I really like that idea a lot. So, again, I'm here with Davis C Holland. Uh, principal of the law offices of david clifford holland pc we're going to wrap things up quickly with this edition of blunt business by the way if you want to go ahead and follow david you can find him on twitter at legalize it law legalize it law and you can also find his website holland litigation.com holland litigation.com check that out as we go to commercial break we'll be right back rolling into some sponsors but we'll be right back with more blunt business Back with final questions with David C. Holland, Principal of the Law Offices of David Clifford Holland, PC. Uh, Besides other things, again, uh, the Executive Legal Director for Empire State Normal, President of the New York City Cannabis Industry Association Legal Advisors, the last prisoner project. You are a very busy man. Before we go ahead and get to my last question for you, David, I must say, too, that when I knew about legalization in New York was going to be in light, and knowing that uh, Senator Schumer of New York and knowing how important it was that New York got this right on legalization on the rollout here, because with all the things they've learned from California, from other major States and knowing that we're going to get to adult use now. And if everything is done correctly with New York, the biggest spotlight is on New York and New York city alone to make the case for federal legalization. That's why everything that's being done right now is under such a microscope That's why even this idea, the tribunal idea, the amnesty model you mentioned, which you're going to talk about and you'll be writing about at some point once everything is formulated, once we have a final idea. There's a whole lot, even off the air, that we discussed about it. There's a whole lot there I want to just bring up and just say I I applaud what New York State's been doing. I like that we get a chance to see some real ambitious direction of what's going on there. It's not going to be perfect, but there's a lot of good things that are being done on how this is implemented and what they're doing with it and just the approach. Like there's really money, real money being put behind this. I can really appreciate that. Now, here's another thing I don't want to bring up before we wrap things up. The RiverNewsroom.com reported this. Quote: It is illegal to drive under the influence of cannabis, to consume cannabis while driving, and for passengers in a vehicle to consume cannabis, and all that will remain illegal once New York's can- cannabis commercial market begins operating. Sometime in the yet-to-be-determined future. But what does it mean to be under the influence of cannabis in the first place? For alcohol, impairment is a blood alcohol level of 0.05%, intoxication 0.08%. But for cannabis, there is no equivalent blood concentration levels. Uh, Joseph Sonagra of the Socrates Police Department says, quote, New York State has yet to establish such measurable levels of THC reflective of impairment or intoxication. There's currently no scientific evidence that quantifies the nanograms per milliliter in the THC1 system that produces impairment. We also lack any reliable road testing devices or way to establish the presence of marijuana like we have for alcohol, such as Alko sensor. That leaves the job of detecting cannabis inhibition up to drug recognition experts, or DREs. Now, you said you were optimistic about the practice of using DREs to determine cannabis influence quote the creation of dres is good to get more accurate assessments of whether or not someone is under the influence end quote so what's the odds that any of these new dui protocols could be rolled out and implemented
3: so i think that there's a lot of money going into the science behind it you know this is the um this is the uh pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for for law enforcement, if you will, whoever invents that spot where you can really, within a matter of minutes, determine the actual THC concentration in somebody's blood and prove that they have, you know, different signs of impairment is going to end up becoming the norm by which this is done. Well, let me tell you, as a former prosecutor, you know, how they used to do it, um, you know, with blood alcohol concentrations, they pull over somebody they think is drunk driving, they make them do a field test, which is you know touch your fingertip to your nose, walk a straight line, this and that. And that's because alcohol generally in, in the vast proportion over 0.05%, 0.08%, which is driving while uh, uh, under the influence, I'm sorry, 0.05 is driving under the influence, driving at 0.08 is driving while impaired. It on the mass spectrum of people, it hits people the same. They lose their coordination, they slur their speech, they get glassy eyes, they get all these things. And cops have a checklist What did you observe? I smelled alcohol on their breath. I, you know, they had glassy eyes, they were on a steady gait, blah, 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 blah. So they tried to apply that same model to people they pulled over for under the influence of cannabis. And it's not the same. They would say, Well, they had a green tongue, well, they had red eyes, well, they were not able to you know, uh, speak in a, uh, you know, steady fashion. Well, that's not really proof of impairment because like you just said, you know, you at first, I think it was Oregon, had five nanograms per milliliter, was then above that was presumptively, you know, under the influence of cannabis. And then they ended up trying to raise it to 17 nanograms saying it's still, you know, it's different per person and there's no real set number you can put. So it will relate to, you know, uh, other observations other than just maybe it's the smell of cannabis or the red eyes or the green tongue. And it will be a number of things that because cannabis affects the central nervous system differently than alcohol does. They're going to be people that are more equipped to be able to conduct roadside tests until there's some swab or nasal swab that will be out there that will better indicate the level of THC in the system at that moment. And and the observable signs that are on top of it saying with that amount and these observations that would prove incorrect.
2: And David, I want to tie in the story. A few weeks ago, I talked to Kelsey Applebaum, head of community partnerships at Vangst. Why am I bringing her up? Because they were talking about the job market because they're doing job staffing. They talked about I talked to her specifically about a story from Marijuana Moment that how the Department of Transportation was proposing a new drug testing policy for workers that use marijuana off the job. This, I think, what the DOT and what the research was being done by the Department of Health and Human Services puts into something where they have some direction of where they're going with it, but if this can be done to where law enforcement can have direction and they just find the technology to be able to go ahead and do the testing on site, this would be a great idea because the fact is they talked about how forcing workers to urinate in a collection jar to go ahead and test for cannabis was not effective they were saying instead of using oral swabs and uh-huh. you know using that instead to detect marijuana use and then the DLT proposal they mentioned there was a four nanogram for per milliliter screening test cutoff for THC that would be enough for them to say would detect use of marijuana while eliminating possibilities of positive tests so that would say impairment if you will if it was at 0.04 percent
3: so if I follow you, I think that what Department of Labor has said is, look, you should not pre or post employment test somebody. Right. So not during their job interview or not when they're on the job, unless there is an articulable and observable set of conditions where the person is unable to carry out, you know, the functions of their job. Right. So that's critical. The peeing in the cup. What happens is all you're doing is measuring whether somebody's consumed cannabis in the last 30 days. It's not a predictor of impairment. It's just yes. a proof that somebody had some encounter with something that comes up and reads like a cannabinoid in the spectrometer in the urinalysis. So that's a big deal because what it's really saying from the Department of Labor is what people do in their off time is their business. So as long as they don't have an observable and articulable condition that makes them seem impaired that they're... You know, not responsive in the way they need to be, and they're falling asleep at the table or whatever, those are the only things that are going to get you really jammed up, unless, and there is a caveat, unless your drug testing is subject to a collective bargaining agreement. That's a whole other can of worms, which I'm fighting on behalf of a firefighter named Scott Martin up in the city of Buffalo, who was terminated, suspended and terminated from the Buffalo Fire Department for testing positive as a medical marijuana patient. And uh, that is uh, subject to a collective bargaining agreement that was never updated to account for, and they intentionally did not account for medical marijuana, or the fact that their union members might use medical marijuana, which is a protected um, right under New York State law. So it's a it's a big brouhaha that's going on up there, and I'm hopefully going to help change the law with regard to this. But in the in the in the workplace, at the end of the day, you're not supposed to be tested.
2: But now going back to the road sobriety tests, going back to that, if I put it together, just to try to calculate this, taking Uh. oral saliva, getting consent for oral saliva to be uh, taken from a swab from the uh, person being pulled over, and then putting that into a solution similar to what you have now with an at-home COVID-19 test, being able to go and put that together and then finding out in a few moments if that person – is impaired or intoxicated or not, you know, if they feel like they need to go and continue to have that standard in place, would that be ultimately where they want to go with it?
3: Uh, the answer is I don't know. But right. with alcohol, is where you're going to have the closest thing. But remember, they give you a breath or they give you a field test where you also blow in the straw and it indicates there. But that is not what you're arrested on the suspicion of impairment. You actually have to go back and blow into a breathalyzer within two hours of your arrest for them to be able to scientifically prove it on a much more refined instrument that you indeed were drunk at the time or impaired at the time by alcohol Mm -hmm. of the arrest. But it has to happen within two hours. And here's the difference between alcohol and cannabis in two hours, alcohol tends to dissolve in your system and break down. You're, you're sobering up, you know, it's not registering as high. Cannabis will go back 30 days. They can still find it in your system, even though most of the time they're not testing for the number of nanograms to prove somehow whether the half-life of the cannabis molecule, you know, where that is on the spectrum, whether it's more recent use within 30 days or, you know, extended use 30 days ago, those are things to be figured out by the technologies. But I don't think there will ever be one conclusive test right there on the spot. I think there will always be things subject to verification, make sure there's not false positives and make sure there wasn't, you know, tampering or anything else. Um, So it's, it's a complicated, I don't envy, I know chief Sinagra. I'm very, very friendly with him. And he sits uh, with a law enforcement conversation that I'm holding through the New York city cannabis industry association, and also in the Hudson Valley cannabis industry association about these very problems that they're facing. How do we address Our communities look for us for public safety when we're not sure how to go about testing cannabis um, impairment issues because the old tests that they got away with, which we know didn't prove impairment, how do they address that now? And what's that dialogue they should have with legislators and their communities? And that's a very important conversation we're very excited about having.
2: I think it's a great, I mean, this, once again, but this was not in New York City. This is Hudson Valley, New York City, New York State that brought this up. I'm like, what a great point to make because, you know, it's where, okay, businesses can kind of run how they're going to run, but still, even though we have legalization now, you still have to be responsible. You still have to, you know, still practice somewhat moderation, just like you do tobacco or alcohol. I mean, that's still going to be, the the that's still gonna be what consumers are gonna have to understand that you know yeah you're now you have device it's, it's it's free to consume this and that but you still have to go ahead and law enforcement's still going to go ahead and pull over those that he feel that are, that are under the influence. That's still gonna be a thing that doesn't change. So I mean I, I appreciate that this has been a great conversation. This is part of I didn't get to talk about the part of the the the, the amnesty part and this right here of the the uh, road testing. this These are very important subjects, and I'm glad these conversations are being had. And like I said, I feel good that if New York is able to go and pull everything together and give up the best possible model, and we didn't even talk about compliance. We didn't even talk about, you know, where businesses are at this moment. The licenses are just getting doled out now. But, I mean, sure, social equity is very important. But for me, it's the area of social equity we talked about earlier and some of the things that are being discussed now with such a large population to work off of. What a testing ground for all this to happen. There's one way here, Canada does it, but when it's being done in the states here and such a large state like New York with so many people and how New York City could absolutely be having this rollout be implemented in such a positive fashion that federal legalization it's going to be ultimately, I think, the reason that federal legalization will finally pass when they see that New York has done so well with it. That's where I think it's it's the key that picks the lock. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, we're the 37th state, uh, you know, in terms of there are 37 that have legalized medical and, and 11 or now 15, I think, now that have done Correct. adult use. when we're, we're one of the most recent. New York is the home of the world financial markets. New York is considered the second most powerful capital in the world after Washington, D.C. Yeah. Right. So you have the United Nations. It all revolves around here. So New York is not just because of its size or just because of its, you know, uh, access to the world's greatest cannabis. It is the power center. One that becomes part of the normalized conversation. And I'm glad that organizations like Normal and the New York City and Hudson Valley Cannabis Industry Associations have fostered those conversations. People are talking about it very seriously. now. People realize this is an industry. We're the fifth largest crop in the United States, and that's not including what's the illicit market. So it cannot be avoided. The legalization is a question, sadly, of politics, not science. And hopefully someday, you know, you have enough people to almost uh, enough states to almost pass a constitutional amendment, which is something I'm working on, too. That can be, you know, safeguard the rights of the states under the Tenth Amendment to be able to determine whether they want to have legal cannabis or not subject to, not subject to federal interference. So it, it, yeah. federal legalization is coming within two years. It's an inevitability, and it will probably be led by conservatives, ironically, rather than others, because the majority it. of the states yeah. are red states and they are states' rights people. And I think that you're going to see as a states' rights issue, they're going to say it's too. You can't turn back the clock anymore. It's just too late.
2: It's just a shame that with all the momentum that was going on this time around, the the Democratic-led House and Senate, the opportunity to go and get this passed right now and $40 million of lobbying money injected into the passage of this to get it from the House passed once again into the Senate where it's not going to make it through. It's unfortunate. And, you know, that's a win that, you know, politically, you know, any government should have had. To be able to get this done because it's it's an inevitability, as you said, could have been two years sooner, but we might have to wait another two
3: years. I agree with that. You cited the problem. Lobbying money. Right. How many 40 million dollars is a drop in the bucket. You know, the pharmaceutical industry and and other big corporate interests have much more lobbying money they put in to try to prevent it from legalizing. So the will of the people will speak out one day. You know, it's, it's, it's otherwise you're not going back to Washington. So when yeah. we remove, if, if we were to have more transparent and limited amounts of money that can be contributed through a lobby, we'll find justice actually is carried out by the will of the people rather than the, the, the desires of the, the deep pockets that people aspire to as politicians and, you know, support base and contributions for their campaigns. Lose the power and empower the people, you'll have legalization no time. Agreed.
2: Again, I'm here with David C. Holland, the Principal of the Law Offices of David Clifford Holland, PC. Website is hollandlitigation.com. And real quickly, if you want to just uh, let listeners know how they can go and get in touch with you or how they can follow along with what you're talking about here, the conversation can continue.
3: Yeah, please. By all means, you can reach out to me through my website, hollandlitigation.com. I'm reachable as Law. At Twitter, um, And you can look at um, NYCCIA.org. That's the New York City Cannabis Industry Association, of which I'm president. And there you'll find lots of things about what we've done and different policy papers we put out and lots of events that we have going on, including Weed Wednesday, which we put in once a month. We're having different locations around the five boroughs of the city in the Hudson Valley. Um, where people that with a similar interests want to get together and just meet people that are interested in the industry, or just talk cannabis, or just socialize with those people with the same affinity. So please, you know, check out those websites and 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 reach out anytime if you want to further the conversation.
2: And I'll, I'll gonna like to make sure normal gets a shout out as well. Empire State Normal is E S N O R M L dot org. E S N O R M L dot org. David, thanks for being on with us. We're definitely going to have you back off. If not on this show, we're going to get you back on because we we got to keep following what's going on in New York State. This is important stuff.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And
2: hey, my pleasure. God, we are so far out of time. But, hey, this was a great conversation. And folks, thanks for listening in to another blunt business. We'll talk to you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.
1: Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about.